0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Lisa Seeland Davis about her new book, Tomboy The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. I wonder if you could begin by telling us about yourself. Sure. I don't know why that question
0: um, stumped me. <laughs> Some social categories I belong to. Full-time freelance writer, uh, mother, uh, New York City resident, often wishing I weren't, Um and um, yeah, you know what, I
1: think that's plenty. Okay, and I think we'll probably get into more of that as we go along, but that's that's a lovely starting place. Um, so can you tell us um, what inspired you to write this book?
0: Well, the first time I, I wrote about this subject was when my daughter was four, I think. And I write a lot of personal essays and I, I started to write about my children without thinking much about the implications. So I first wrote about just the experience of watching as a lot of kids started really performing these gender roles and really segregating by sex in preschool and having a child who wasn't following suit and my conflicted feelings about that as a feminist. And then a few years later... Um, someone told her, when she went to elementary school in first grade, someone told her she was a tomboy. And that started me thinking about that term and why I hadn't come up with that term to explain um, the uniqueness of the way that she was playing as, or looking as compared to her um, female friends. And eventually because there was a kind of um, really lovely, kind, um, inclusive, generous attempt um, to, to make her feel comfortable by adults who knew her well um, by constantly asking if she wanted new pronouns or if she wanted to change in the boys' locker rooms. And this was like this very sweet, wonderful thing that grownups were doing, but it was also sending her the message as a kid who hadn't asked for those things that she actually wasn't a girl because of the way she looked and who she played with. And it was really all those things together that led me to write an op-ed in which I tried to really express support for trans kids, but also to question what, uh, how, how much sometimes we're reinforcing gender stereotypes by assuming a kid like this um, has a different gender identity. And that inspired a very intense response. I would say most of it was positive, but the negative was so negative um, that at first it was I was really taken aback and confused. And then I tried to learn more about um, what some people objected to. And once I knew a little bit more about just the complexity of this issue, it was clear that I could, um, that there was enough for a book in it.
1: And part of the controversy with the New York Times op-ed was that they changed the title and they changed the language that you used to describe your daughter. You called her just a girl and they were the ones who changed it to tomboy?
0: No, 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 no. No, they, uh, they didn't do anything wrong. It's just that writers don't choose their headlines. And so they can put provocative headlines that get people to click, but that don't necessarily reflect the spirit of the article. And I say clearly in that op-ed that I don't know how she's going to identify later. So, but that she's, you know, for now a girl. And the title was, My Daughter is Not Transgender, She's a Tomboy. So it really, it made it seem much more didactic than it was. And because so few people read past the headline, even of something that's, you know, a three minute read, there was just a, a, there were many people who felt it was anti-trans and, um, and were offended by the headline, whether or not they might've been willing to consider what I was talking about, which is a, which is a really, really sticky subject about, gender itself. And you know, this podcast is new books in gender studies, but gender means three different things. And there is very little discussion of how the word gender means different things to different people. In fact, it's, it's hard to get anyone to publish anything about the contested meanings of gender. So uh, when, you, when, when gender studies is used
1: here, I, I'm curious what it refers to. So let's let's go ahead and unpack that a bit then, since we're both fascinated by uh, what it can mean. So you said for you, gender means three different things, or if from your research. And so, what are the three things? Well, the way I was raised, because
0: I was raised um, with feminist parents, um, and and my stepfather is was a, a professor of social science, and you know, so I subscribe to the social science meaning, and I had no idea there was another meaning or two other meanings, which is that gender is about the stereotypes and norms and expectations associated with your sex, your biological sex category. So all, all of the things people assume about you or the way they try to box you in, the expectations they impose upon you. That's what I believe gender is but there are other people and therefore socially constructed, right? Um, Masculinity and femininity, as opposed to male and female, which would be sex. That's what I learned to believe. Other people, and I think many, many more people today are learning that gender is gender identity. And they are learning that how masculine or feminine you are is biological and that gender identity is biological and there's tremendous tension between those definitions of gender and then there's the third definition in which it's used as a synonym with with the word sex and meaning the same thing so you've got people running around like arguing with each other who who, who maybe don't realize that this word at the root of all these discussions simply means different things to different people, and that each meaning has its own political agenda attached to it, and each meaning, each definition does something to liberate one group that is could be threatening to another.
1: And those tensions between those three different um, lines of thought really are woven throughout your book. You, you reached out to so many different experts in so many different fields, and your bibliography is rich with so many different sources. As you really unpacked what is gender, what do people attach to the idea of gender, where do they where do they come from in, in their ideas, and all of that kind of coalesces around the idea of Tomboy. Um, and In the book, you talk about your own um, childhood associations with tomboy. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah. So
0: I grew up in the seventies and early eighties, and that was what I've called the last tomboy heyday in America. And it was a time when there was a lot of feminism that was getting woven into popular culture and an idea along with that, that femininity was bad. And so lots of girls were encouraged to reach over to the boy side of the line. So I was not tomboyish in that. I was not sassy, confident, didn't play with boys, didn't um didn't aspire to anything culturally mass- marked as masculine. I was sometimes I looked like a tomboy because most girls I knew then were dressed the same as boys. We, had, we all had the same kind of bowl haircut. We, lots and lots of girls had short hair. We wore unisex clothes. That's what we called them, but they were actually boys' clothes. And the heroines of the most popular TV shows and films were all tomboys, Jodie Foster and Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichol um, and Joe on the Facts of Life. And you know th- those were our, our heroines, um so we were encouraged to be more boy like in some way but also to stop thinking of that stuff as boy like to to normalize what was on the blue side of the pink blue divide for girls and there was a real concerted cultural effort to make that happen and one one example of that that i love is that in the in the sears catalogs which are kind of the amazon.com of you know the 20th century they had boys to girls size conversion charts so that girls could shop in the boys clothing section of of the Sears catalog. So very clear messages that this is available to you. Along with that though was the message that everyone should reject what's on the girl side.
1: And how did your relationship then with Tomboys mirror or differ from your daughters? Because as you said, this began. This journey into this book began when you wrote an article about your daughter, and she was presenting as a tomboy, and that kind of opened up this topic and brought back a lot of memories and cultural associations for you. So how, how did your relationship with tomboys relate to your daughters, or did it not?
0: Well, it was more that her bringing that word to us um, – which normalized her difference for whoever it was. I, I still don't know who gave it that word to her, but I assume that it, that a parent and child were talking about why is this, why is there this girl with short hair and sweatpants? And I'm sure the parent said, oh, she's a tomboy, you know, and that's, and that's a girl who has short hair and likes sports. And, and so she wasn't feeling distressed about her difference, but it was it caused other people distress. And then that word provided this relief for her. It just was a word she could give to people. Um, but for me, it made me look at the girls around us at school, on the playground, on the subway. You know, I'm surrounded by millions of people. And knew almost no one else like her. I mean now I know plenty of kids like that because parents write to me. In fact, one of her best friends and one of my best friends is just a a local mom who wrote to me after that New York Times article and said, I feel like I wrote this and then we ended up getting together and we all love each other. So it's not that they it's not that these kids don't exist. I mean for one thing, You wouldn't actually know that they were girls by looking at them anyway. So I could have been surrounded by lots of girls like this, and I just didn't know because I assumed they were boys myself participating in this structure that says girls look like this and boys look like this, which I I didn't even know I was doing because I didn't know that it had gotten that the gendering of childhood had become so stratified because when I was a kid, it wasn't like that. You know, there are so many people who become parents of the Gen X people who become parents and they go to like get stuff, you know, or go shopping uh, for bedding and they go to a website and it's divided into boys' bedding and girls' bedding. And they think, was that a thing? Was it that? Was every single part of childhood stratified like that when I was a kid? I don't think so. But we we don't know what happened. And I didn't know what happened until I did the research for this book.
1: And it was really inescapable for you, the gender questions, even as you were trying to find gender neutrality for your children. You gave an example of you were seeing how so many children had iPads, and so you you decided, well, your girls could, I believe it was a Kindle. And it was a, yeah, Kindle, a Kindle fire. And, and when you were trying to set them up for them as parents do and set in the parental controls and whatnot, you have to do to make it safe for them. You were surprised that one of the questions was gender of the children and you didn't want to have to choose one, but you like literally couldn't finish the setup unless you checked boxes.
0: I mean, it's everywhere. I signed my kids up for, um, Spotify once the pandemic hit and we were home and I was like, here, listen, listen to music, any music you want. And, um. And you could choose um, male, female, or non-binary, and I wondered why Spotify needed to know, and what would be different. And I said to my kids, "You can choose any of these you want, but likely, you know, they're they're collecting information about you, but also their algorithm is going to sort what they expose you to based on how you choose, um, and with." This was a few years ago, so and, and the Amazon rep told me they were working on it. But when I got the Kindle Fires, you had to choose either boy or girl, and then it sorted everything that it filled the, the tablet with. So it, it fills you with suggested apps and videos and books. It populates the device with those things, and it is completely different based on what you choose. They just
1: expose you to completely different media. And throughout the book, you give a number of examples of marketing and how marketing is tied to gender and gender is tied to marketing and how they're just tangled together, chasing each other. And um, you talk about how in the past, pink was actually masculine and blue was feminine Um, And how this has changed even through marketing, Um, how, as you said, that there's sort of the disappearance of the unisex clothing or the conversion charts for if you're going to buy a onesie or you're going to buy overalls, uh, what size works for which gender. Um, And there's a strong thread of capitalism uh, in in this rigid gendering that there's a, if you can sell a pink soccer ball and then a boys soccer ball, you can sell twice as many soccer balls. Um, how did your research into marketing um, affect what you were finding out about the current state of gender?
0: Well, you know, that, that explained this question that had come up of like, well, why was my childhood so different in, in terms of our material worlds than my children's? And what I found, as you say, was that it really was about selling stuff and wanting to, especially as birth rates declined, really wanting to make sure that kids could not share hand-me-downs. So if you had purchased especially anything pink, um, you couldn't use that for your boys. So you had to buy new stuff. Um, So that proved so effective that people came to believe that not only had it always been that way, but that there is a biological component to that. And they just accept that pink and blue are boys and girls colors um, or girls and boys, as the case may be. Um, I can't remember what the rest of your (laughs) question was about marketing.
1: And that's okay. Uh, it, was, it was just about really how the, the marketing is, I, I guess, encouraging parents, as you said, to believe this is the norm. This is what their children need. This is what um, is natural and has always been so.
0: And I think what's important to realize when you're participating in this, and it's, you know, there's still plenty of room for girls to access boy stuff, and girls can wear blue. And when there are gender neutral clothes, there are always boys' clothes. But it's important for parents of boys to realize um, what, what messages you're sending when you don't put your boys in pink things or when you really emphasize sex differences between young children. The problem is that so much is divided into pink and blue, in, including... Um, toys that promote certain skill sets and including personality traits that we associate with cert- with one sex or another and what happens is because children learn to police each other so young and because parents participate in this messaging that the pink or blue side is not for you Um, and especially the pink side, not for boys, you end up limiting their kind of normal human psychological development because so much is forbidden. You know, for boys being emotional and kind and sensitive and quiet and sweet, all that stuff is associated with femininity instead of humanity. So the problem is that you're not just marketing toys or clothes, but you're marketing ways of being in the world that are incredibly limited.
1: And you have a section in the book where you talk about that developmental stage for very young children when they're two and three years old about uh, key markers of brain development and and their experience with permanence and impermanence and how they can not understand that their own identity, their own gender is is actually part of them. They kind of have a fear that if they don't learn these messages and police each other, that they'll lose um, these, these parts of their gender and and their identity, what things that we think of as adults, oh, children are so imaginative. They really, they get so lost in their play actually because they don't have that, that permanence yet. They actually become and explore those things in their play. That's as real for them as, as anything else because of that stage of brain development. And so for preschools and for parents who are dealing with children that age, what, what are your, what is your advice to them? What is your, what is your findings about that age group and how gender is affecting them?
0: Yeah, I think preschool is where we really need to put our focus. And I hope a lot of preschool teachers read this book and people involved in, in early education. Um, so kids learn very early, what sex category they belong to, boy or girl. And um, if you believe those, I know some people don't believe that those are sex categories and that those are social categories. And I'll say, just qualify, qualify this with um, trans kids also sometimes um, fall along the lines of cisgender kids. So a trans girl might develop the same way uh, a cisgender girl would. But I'm talking generally about cisgender children here. So, um, usually by age two, they know their category because they've been told repeatedly, and they learn very, very early the the stereotypes associated with those categories and if we think about how much childhood has gotten hypergendered how every single toy and every single every single item their toothbrushes their pens their socks you know anything you can think of is divided into pink and blue as well as all these other things we talked about their, their you know their material and psychic worlds are divided into pink and blue and they know that they learn that by age 3 they're really fully able to police each other for um, if they don't stay within the lines, and the lines are like very severe now. So um, preschool teachers and parents, if they want to interrupt that, oh, I, I should say that that what they don't understand is this idea of gender constancy, which is the idea that your membership in that group is not based on stereotypes that we actually divided you into those groups by your bodies. So they think a a child will think dresses are for girls. So if I wear a dress, I'm a girl. So a boy will think that too. And if he's really like trying to perfect his membership in the boy category, he doesn't want to wear a dress because it's for girls and it'll make him a girl. So, they, it takes them a little while to understand like, oh, there's my body or there's this category. And the stereotypes, how much I hew to them or reject them, don't have to affect my membership in this category. But as I said, the, what's divided into pink and blue includes all of these things that are just human traits or human interests or human ways of being so when, they're, when kids are policing each other and parents are reinforcing that with their choices and preschool teachers may, they may also reinforce that with, like, you know, um, having a just the, even the assumptions that the girls will want to play dress up and the boys will want to play with trucks, that if you try not to gender the items in the preschool and you really work hard to make sure that kids feel they can play with anybody and with anything, you can, really, um, you can really make them into more egalitarian human beings. And you know they're doing this in Sweden with those gender... They're called gender-neutral preschools, but what they really mean is we're just trying to make stuff that any kid can access, and we're just trying to prepare them now for a more gender-egalitarian future. And I think it works. I think there's plenty of compelling evidence that it affects the way children see themselves and the options they feel are available to them.
1: And in your quest to really dive deep into this, you talk to scientists about the brain. Um, as you say, gender is it in the body? Is it in the expression of the self? These are, these are questions that the larger society asks and makes assumptions about. And so you, you actually talk to people who study differences in brain anatomy and uh, brain chemistry, and you've found that there wasn't significant difference between a male and a female brain. Is that right? I wouldn't say that. I would okay.
0: say that there are some differences on average And that there is no way to tell how much those average and quite small differences are the result of socialization versus the result of inherent innate biology as if your biology is not affected by the culture and your experiences. So I... I went to two different conferences about gender. One was a conference for gender expansive and trans kids and their families. And one was an academic gender conference. And there I saw the exact same research about testosterone and gender identity. So hormone effect on the brains. I saw the exact same research interpreted to promote opposing theories. In one this research was used to say there is a biological basis for gender identity and it's affected by prenatal hormone exposure and in the other in the other conference it was the the shift is so significantly small that we can only say there's a minor there's a little bit of influence not much. And the conclusion I came to was that Trying to pinpoint the exactly how biological or social gender is is a, is a losing battle because we don't live in a gender egalitarian society. We don't raise boys and girls the same way. We don't talk to them the same way. We don't buy the same things for them. We don't sign them up for the same activities. So we have no way of knowing how kids would be if they really were raised the same. There's no way that they are not affected by the imprint of socialization and that many scientists, especially people who study the brain, are understanding it as a plastic organ that is influenced by experience. So clearly there are physical differences between males and females and there's enough hormonal exposure in utero to change the bodies and the reproductive systems. But the idea that that initial surge of hormones is enough to change your brain completely as if the rest of your life doesn't matter, as if you weren't getting other surges of hormones at various times in your life, is is just um, kind of insultingly simplistic. And so what I say to people is be wary of uh, the information you get that presents anything about gender as simple or one-sided, that the, the, the way through this is to accept the murk, the, the murkiness, the contradiction, the complexity, and try to be comfortable with how difficult it is to get a clear picture of right and wrong and to see if instead of focusing on that, that we can really focus on equality, equity, respect and space for all these different kinds of people and belief systems.
1: And you you do talk throughout the book about the importance of the nuances of uh, noticing subtle differences without ascribing um particular meaning to them. As you said, one conference can take one set of data and make a compelling argument for what it means, and the other conference can take very similar data and make an equally compelling conference uh, answer for a a very different way of seeing it. Um, And so throughout the book, you caution against being reductionist and being simplistic. Um, and there's one family that you um, highlight who I found quite fascinating. It comes towards the end of the book. Can you talk about Zuma Coyote's family? Yeah. And, and
0: you know, not to plug the competition, but Kyle Myers has a book coming out next month um, about a memoir about her gender creative parenting. And she is an incredibly smart and informed sociologist. Um, so I would Recommend talking to her, um, and a a very cool person. And as a sociologist, she had learned how much of health outcomes are affected by gender. So the plagues of eating disorders that you know that girls have um, because of pressures around being a girl or how many boys die in accidents because of the pressure to be rowdy or, you know, defiant in some way. And that these, that these health outcomes were not rooted so much to sex as much as they were to gender, that is like the expectations, the norms, the pressures. And she decided that when she had a kid, she did not want the kid to feel those pressures to be limited in this Way that kids are today because of the hypergendering of childhood, and so uh, I do not know what Zoomer's sex is, um, and Zoomer is raised with they, they them pronouns, and I think you know Zoomer's doctor knows, and I don't know if the if, if Zoomer's teachers know, but Zoomer is being raised in a world in which the material and psychic worlds of children are not gendered. So nothing, you know, all the pink and all the blue and all the girls and all the boys and just being raised with all of this is available to you, including a gender identity, which you can claim when and if you want one.
1: And the importance of the influence of community and finding community and how community responds to you is a, is definitely a sub theme in the book. And one of the ways, um, it was very poignant for me was your child pointed out to you the, the bathroom sign pictures. Um, can you talk about what I think as adults, we stop noticing anymore, which is the bathroom sign pictures mm-hmm. that are throughout our society.
0: The bathroom sign pictures make no sense because women worked so hard for the legal right to wear pants, which, you know, in, in some places they still don't have. And in, in some places in America, they didn't even have in the middle of the last century, you know? So why do we have a dress on a bathroom sign to indicate who should go in there? But it would be, what are we going to put, you know, vaginas and penises? And what about the people who, you know, have constructed vaginas and penises or, you know, <laughs> lose them or have accidents or, you know, are we, that's what we're really saying with those signs when you think about it. And, There, you know, my 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 kids have pointed out all kinds of things about gender to me, including, you know, the 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 short haired one saying, everyone is like so freaked out about short haired girls, but almost every woman over sixty five has short hair. (laughs) So, you know, what is that about? Why don't why do so few little girls have short hair and so many older women have it? You know, they're they're picking up on the contradictions and how the rules shift over time and with age and demographics.
1: And there's also contradictions in the idea of a tomboy or why, how you present as a tomboy um, across racial lines. And that's something that, that you bring up as well, that the stereotypical... Idea that we might conjure up of a tomboy is a white girl, yeah. And for girls of color, how their femininity is understood by the dominant culture, and how they present as a tomboy or are not actually presenting as a tomboy, but are assumed that some of their traits are too masculine. Or, um, can you talk about the complexity that you uncovered there?
0: Yeah, and you know that's based on. Uh, other people's research um, and particularly a book called American Tomboys 18 um, something to 19 something um, by Renee Santillis who's a, um, a historian and she looked at the way tomboyism was promoted in the popular culture and also the lives of girls um, in the latter half of the 19th and, and the beginning of the early 20th century um, and ultimately concluded that there was a kind of white privilege in being a tomboy in part because it was seen as an, an allowable kind of divergence from the norm for white girls, especially like urban white girls, that it's this wonderful thing that you're climbing a tree or playing outside. Whereas a a poor rural girl, even a white girl, you know, that kind of thing that's seen as tomboyism would just be life for you. And for an enslaved girl, um, you know, or anyone conscripted to labor because many children were still working, you know, that was, there was no like frolicking about outside. It was like, that's my life is being outside. You know, that's my life is doing hard physical labor, being a physical sporty kind of strong person. So It it was connected to race and class in all kinds of ways. And then there was even a kind of eugenics and white supremacy connection in that um, because the birth rate was declining among American born whites um, and and partly because white middle-class and upper-class women were expected to be very frail and remain in the domestic sphere and were wearing these, you know, corsets and bustles and things that were terrible for their health. So their birth rate was declining. And so there was this idea, let's raise these girls as tomboys so that they'll be really healthy. So then when it's time to have babies, their bodies will be ready for it. And that was like, you know, to make them produce white children. And Tomboy, tomboy. the word tomboy did, really didn't even appear in black newspapers or in, in white publications until the middle of the 20th century as sports started being desegregated. And um, there were athletes like Althea Gibson um, getting press and then starting to talk about their childhoods. And they would say, oh, yes, I was a tomboy growing up. But that word had been... Uh, had sort of belonged to middle and upper middle class white girls before then.
1: And you talk about uh, this sort of privileged space for these white girls who can be a tomboy for a while, but even for them, there was pressure to uh, what you say, surrender their, their tomboy ways at puberty. And, and a phrase you have in the book is tomboy taming. Can you talk about that pressure on tomboys that they could be tomboys for a while, but there was a clock on it? Yeah. I mean, it seemed like throughout,
0: you know, for the for the last 170 years since that word was positively applied to girls, it was always conditional upon it being surrendered at puberty. And that made puberty, very difficult <laughs> for a lot of girls who had been tomboys for a variety of reasons. Um, but you know, it starts with that idea that you're a tomboy so that you can be a good procreator of little white babies. So naturally you're going to have to stop, you know, climbing trees and running around and playing baseball because now you're going to have to take up your role as a proper wife and mother. So that's the the beginning of that. And there's even, um, Um, a book by Joseph Lee, who is the father of the playground movement in this country. And he writes in the early, in the early 1900s, that girls should be totally encouraged to be tomboys during the tomboy age. And that age is something like eight to 13 or something. And then that's it, you're done. And what was interesting to me, because I, I had interviewed all of these different kinds of people, different races, different classes, different gender identities, different sexual orientations, and the one story that I heard over and over was the horrible day when their mothers sat them down and said, you can't run around without a shirt anymore. This was the day that their lives changed. This was the day that they realized they didn't have equality with boys, that, they're, that they were coming to the end of their tomboy years, and that they were not going to have control over how they were perceived. And no, no matter who they became later, that was a universally extremely painful experience and a giant bummer.
1: That brings back memories of my own at the beach uh, that I haven't thought about in a long time. I grew up in a beach community, and there was an age when, as the girl, you, you had to keep your bikini top on. You had to keep your shirt on, and it was confusing for all of us. Yeah. Arbitrary rules that our mothers were explaining to us, and we were like, what? Right. I forgot. Yeah. Which is kind of like your body
0: is not your own, and you can't make really make decisions about it, and, um, and you have to sort of protect yourself from the male gaze now. And many of these girls did not enjoy what happened after puberty when men looked at them differently, when boys who had been their peers and companions looked at them differently. It was very, very uncomfortable because it was so different from how things had been before.
1: And you talk about that in in the sections where you talk about dress and and what and dress meaning style of clothing, um, and that for females who were choosing a tomboy style of dress, even into adulthood, um, they articulated to you that they wanted to present themselves to others, not their sexuality, that, that performing a sexiness out of their, in, in their clothing was not what they wanted to do. Um, can you talk about those findings and those conversations that you had with people? Yeah, I didn't find too many
0: people who had gone full traditional femininity. I found um, one woman said, I wear skirts now, but it's really just because my thighs are so big at this point in my life that um, pants are uncomfortable and it's hard to find them that fit well. And very few of them wore um, dresses or, or heels and few of them enjoyed dressing sexily. They, um, they felt like they had learned by being socialized with and sometimes as boys to be perceived in a certain way. And if they dressed a certain way that is not you know provocatively, not traditionally feminine, it was easier to keep being perceived that way. And for people to see their skill sets or their smarts, or, you know, what was inside them instead of seeing them as an object to be judged.
1: And as you're going through the book, you're, you're talking about um, how parents influence this, how society influences this. And you talk about the importance of egalitarian parenting um, as the way to shift this um that egalitarian parents raise more tomboys who and then the tomboys themselves are people who have more egalitarian thinking can you talk about that concept yeah
0: there there wasn't a ton of research on this but one study had found that there was a connection between sort of how tomboyish the mother was and how tomboyish the child was and also whether the father you know and and you know i apologize for the heteronormativity of it but that's who was in these studies were heterosexual couples so because they were this particular study was from the 80s um, so and not that there weren't gay couples with children but it was just a different time and they weren't in these studies so um, so it said you know if they if they had dads who took them, you know, hunting or fishing and all that stuff, that they also tended to be more tomboyish, that it basically exposing them to those things as options um, made them feel that, th- that those were opportunities they could partake of and that that kind of openness led you know, then the, then those kids go on to be more open themselves. And, and that's research that applies to trans kids, too, that their difference, their being different tends to make them more accepting of other people's difference. Um, and it applies to kids who are gender nonconforming. And by that, I mean not conforming to gender norms um, that. There's all kinds of research about how psychologically healthy it is, right, to not conform to gender norms. And so they tend to be, as as we said, more egalitarian. And they also tend to do better in school. They tend to be more creative. There are are all of these ways that being naturally nonconforming is helpful to you, but also encouraging that kind of non-conformity to gender norms um, through your parents and through changing the culture, um, is part of that project too, of creating more equity and more access to both sides of the pink-blue divide.
1: And you say um, in the book that non-sexing non-sexist parenting can't really work unless it liberates boys, girls, and kids who don't fit into either category equally. And one of the sub-themes of the book is boys who present as what is a derogatory term as sissy and the difficulties that they face. Could you talk a bit about that? Because it is is a sub-theme as well.
0: Yeah. So non-sexist parenting was a a term from the seventies and it was part of that thing that we were talking about before of the boys to girls conversion charts and part of the sort of cultural project to open boys worlds up to girls and to say, this is not just for boys because the boys world had all the power. (laughs) So women wanted to raise their, their girls to have that power also. Um, but the problem was that it devalued anything that was associated with girls. And because pink had started being associated with girls in the, in the 1950s, you know, it was really about like reject anything pink, reject anything feminine, but the stuff that's pink and feminine is plenty good and important too. us. We talked about before, like being nurturing and communicative and kind and gentle, sweet. And so rejecting all that stuff is not healthy and boys who are pressured to reject all that stuff then don't get the same opportunity that girls have Um, no one ever said no one had girls to boys size conversion charts in the Sears catalog you couldn't go shopping for a dress or something pink or sparkly and that always sent the message that there's something wrong wrong with that stuff for boys and for girls, but it's always been easier for girls to straddle the pink-blue divide, and boys have always had to stay firmly on the blue side. And, and again, what I argue is that too much is labeled pink and blue, you know, either literally or figuratively, and it's actually just... It's impossible to conform to those gender norms when they're imposed onto every single item and every single thought and feeling.
1: And you quote um, a professor of psychology in the book named Dr. Christina Brown as saying, parents are focused on the gender of their babies because they think it's going to tell them what their child's life is going to be like. It seems like a argument of the book is that it doesn't tell them what their life is going to be like, it tells them how their life is going to be made for them by teaching them gender, by performing for them, what gender is by purchasing gender for them. Um, Is, is that one of the conclusions? Yeah. I mean, the conclusion is the,
0: the way your child performs gender may or may not be an indicator of who they are. The sex that your child is assigned at birth is mostly an indicator of how you will treat them and how the world will relate to them. And as you say, market to them, it's mostly an indicator of the world that will be created and limited based on their sex. And as I said before, we don't have gender egalitarian parenting or a gender egalitarian society. So we don't really know, we don't have a way of knowing how kids, you know, naturally are and who they would be if they were all raised the same way. We we are not able to do that experiment, but we certainly are able to reduce the amount of gendering of kids material and psychic worlds. We don't have to participate in this system in which we limit them, if which we limit their toys and their colors and keep communicating that there's boy stuff and girl stuff and boy ways to be and girl ways to be. Um, yeah.
1: There's an interesting um, section in your book where you talk about when girls get to be around about six years old, that they start vocalizing that they don't have an interest in princesses and they don't have an interest in pink. And you caution for parents that rather than the child really embracing a more egalitarian view that this might be internalized misogyny. Can you talk a bit about that? You have a a section in the book specifically about your child's birthday party where these themes are coming up.
0: Yeah, you know, I think this research affected me the most in some way. And was the most surprising to me because so much, so much of this research turned up the way we insult and discredit femininity. And no matter what we mark as feminine, we say it's bad and gross and girls should reject it and boys should reject it. And so the, there's research, um, by a team of social psychologists, including Mayling Halim, um, that that girls you know go through many of us experience girls going through a very intense princess phase around ages 3 to 6 you know when they are really invested in performing girl perfecting it maintaining their membership in the group again before they understand gender constancy and then somewhere in the 6 to 8 range they start going through a phase where they decide to reject that and they announce I don't like pink. I hate princesses. And many parents, including me, are like relieved. Oh, God, thank God that's over. And at first, the psychologist thought that that had to do with this gender constancy thing, that they realized that, oh, I don't have to do pink princess to be a girl. I can wear anything. I can do anything. But, they, but boys weren't doing it. Boys were not turning six and then saying, like, I, I will take a full princess dress, line from Disney please. Um, and, and in fact, the boys were becoming like more insistent about looking and like a boy and performing boyhood in this very particular and narrow way. And what they realized is that in addition to understanding gender constancy, they also understood gender hierarchy and they understood that things that are marked as feminine are, um, viewed as less than things that are marked as masculine and you know it's one thing to reject the princesses and the and the messages that go along with princesses about you know that all that matters is that you're beautiful and you sit around and wait for a prince to to save you but there's so much other stuff in there and kind of random stuff like the color pink or hearts glitter or rainbows a lot of things associate flowers you know, a lot of things associated with beauty and a lot of wonderful things. And when you start thinking about like, that we, that, that a boy might say like, ew, rainbows are gross. I hate flowers. Then you start thinking like, wait, rainbows and flowers are the miracle of life. Pink is the color of sunsets and, and flowers and, we're only saying this stuff is bad because it's associated with girls. And that was really horrifying to me. I, and, and it really, it changed my parenting because when I started hearing girls announcing that they were hating pink, which right on cue, all of these seven-year-old girls started doing. And I, of course I knew that they were, what they were saying is, oh, I've internalized the message that I should reject what's feminine. And so I, I decided you know, that I didn't want to participate in that. I just didn't, we just, in, in our world, no colors or toys or personality traits and nothing, not, no clothes, nothing is gendered. Everything is available to anyone.
1: And you talk about at that party, if we could go back to it for a minute, where the girls are saying, well, we don't want, we don't want princesses, we don't want a princess movie. And so I believe you chose to, to play Brave, for yeah, them, is that right? Uh huh. Yeah. And in, and in your research, um, you say that there's only about twenty five percent of uh, speaking roles that have girl characters, and only about a third of film roles that even name a girl character or give her a speaking part. So, I was imagining you there in that moment. You had available what you had, and the girls are following. It sounds like a somewhat alpha female girl there who was saying, I don't like this. I don't like that. And they were then saying, yes, yes. And, and you're choosing brave, but you didn't have a lot of other films to choose from. <laughs> given what's marketed and put out there.
0: Yeah. And you know, I do think that you know, I used to work in kids TV and I belong to some groups of, of children's media professionals. And there are a lot of wonderful people working very, very hard to open up um the the media roles for girls and um not surprisingly i i think that canadians are doing it best and there's a um i think his name is jj johnson a canadian producer of kids television who has a show called dino dana and a show called androids and it's just about girls who are super into science and it's They're not necessarily tomboyish, but it's really normalizing their agency um, and their scientific mindedness. So I I think that you can, if you look for it, you can find these other models. But I think if you're buying the dominant media, um, you're going to find what what these reports um, have found, which is that you know there was a report last year that that girls often solve problems using magic in shows and boys use their brains and they use STEM. And, and so there's just, you know, they're just presented as having different skill sets and girls are presented as having one that doesn't even a skill set that doesn't even exist and, and isn't, isn't an option to any actual human girls.
1: That was giving to my next question was about the, the data you had presented about girls and magic because that's a well. It's uh, compelling to watch. Um, I think it's called "The Worst Witch" on Amazon uh, to see this girl's school, and it's you know it's fun escapism, uh, and they master their magic. In fact, by calling it magic, we do take away their agency.
0: Yeah, and you know I think we've always been interested in stories with magic, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's simply that you know we need other storylines as well. And, and we normalize behavior with media representations. And so what I've, all I've kind of been arguing is, is to put back, put back this kind of model of a masculine, um, smart, tough, cool, independent girl. We don't have to take any, you know, we live in the age of endless media. We don't have to take anything away. And it's, we can just put this kind of person back who was a regular trope in, in my childhood, and the childhood of millions of women. Um, but, but whom young girls today are not seeing much of.
1: And the idea of expansiveness, uh, in how we look at gender in how we look at the possibilities of childhood and how we look at the possibilities of media representation of what, what female girls, uh, and cisgendered and transgendered females can do in um, fiction and all sorts of platforms that you argue for, are just a very expanded, as you said, we don't need to take away the girl who's proficient in magic. That is fun to watch, but we can add in um, a variety of ways of expressing girlhood and femininity. Um, and you, you argue that that is, is good for all humans, not just for, uh girls to see this representation, but for boys to see this representation, and for children to understand they don't have to choose a, a gender. They don't have to check a box. Is that right?
0: I Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I think there's so much focus on gender identity and a real fascination with it. And I don't write a ton about it. You know, I have a chapter where I talk about the Contestation of language and about different words mean different things. Sometimes within a, a social group of people, and that you know, there, there's there's a real fascination with gender identity and this desire again to draw distinct lines between a kind of childhood behavior and and gender identity. And what I'm really arguing for is, and I, I'm asking. I don't know the answer. Is it, you know, do we, do we need to put kids in new boxes is more boxes, the answer, or is the answer to, to not be so worried about what box they're in and allow them to explore both sides of the pink blue divide and to not be limited by gender norms. And I, and I think that sometimes having identities like or having a word like tomboy was very, very liberating for so many people, for so many girls and women for so long. It was a way to say, I'm not beholden to your rules for me. But there are other people who find that word offensively uh, limiting. And that's why... I'm kind of advocating for living with the discomfort of ambiguity, of not knowing, and of like allowing for as much healthy exploration as possible without being tied to a certain label for what it means.
1: That's a wonderful summation of the book. Um, In the few minutes we have left, can you tell us um, what surprised you the most when you were writing this book? Did it did it end up where you thought it would, or, or did it take you in a different place in your journey? You know, I knew
0: nothing about the subject when I started, and I had no idea. I had no idea what kind of book I was going to write. So I first I tried to look at as much academic research as possible, and then I tried to interview as many different kinds of people who were connected to the word tomboy as I could. And, you know, one thing that surprised me the most was what I just talked about in terms of marking things feminine and then rejecting them because we marked them as feminine and how much we all, even the most feminist of parents are participating in that. Um, But I was really struck by how similar the childhood stories were of all these people I interviewed and how different their adult lives and identities were. And some of them grew up to be, to identify as trans men. Some of them identified as butch lesbians or femme lesbians, or um, by one person said bisexual, but men are really disappointing. And some of them were cis women and they were just all different kinds of people. But the thing that they had seemed to have in common was self-confidence, which definitely has eluded me my whole life. And I was really struck by the benefits of of their kind of proximity to male privilege as children that seem to contribute to their self-confidence and success later in life. Some of that is about not being limited by gender norms. Some of them might has to do with how they were often treated when people perceived them as a boy, and some of them that has to do with having a comfort being around men and masculinity and not um, feeling intimidated by it, so that they could be in male dominated fields and feel comfortable there.
1: And that seemed to be one of the takeaways that you had when you when you looked at um, post puberty with tomboys. You you. We're identifying them that they had themes of self identification, they had self determination, and that they were pursuing a path to authenticity.
0: Yeah, I like that. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way, but I really like the way you said that.
1: Oh, good, because <laughs> I think I think we're about out of time. Um, and I, my final question was just, what do you hope this book sparks?
0: I am disturbed by the kind of cultural discourse, if we can call it that, that we've engaged in and the shutting down of exploration and the cancel culture and people shaming each other for not knowing something or not understanding something or even not believing something that someone else believes. And that is why I caution against subscribing to, you know, there are a lot of people writing books about gender that will say, I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to tell you how it is. And what I am telling you is here is a way to think about this. And here are also four other ways that other people think about this. And here is how to, um, here's how to see this moment in a larger cultural and historical context, because I feel like we've learned so much about gender and gender identity in the past couple of years, but it seems like we're also forgetting a lot of what we learned before, especially in the 1970s and in the last kind of feminist wave. And I want to build on the knowledge, not replace it. So. That requires, because some of that new knowledge and old knowledge um, contradicts, you know, and, and threatens, it's very, it's very hard to synthesize it. But I want to have a deeper, more complicated discussion that allows us to acknowledge multiple belief systems
1: that are difficult to synthesize, but I'd like to try. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about Tomboy, the surprising history and future of girls who dare to be different. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.